Well, good morning, friends. It is very quiet this morning, isn't it? That can't just be because my family are gone, surely. I wonder if you would turn with me to Psalm 133, page 519 in the Visitor's Bibles. And we sung this little psalm together a few weeks ago, and it was so fun that it had to be preached when we got the chance. So here we go. Psalm 133. I'll read it rather woodenly, but it's only three verses long, so I'm sure we'll cope. A song of going up of David. Behold, what good, what loveliness when brothers sit down, even together. It's like good oil running down over the heads over the beard, the beard of Aaron, which runs down over the mouth of his gown. It's like the dew of Hermon, which runs down over the mountains of Zion, because there Yahweh has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, this is probably one of those things a minister should never admit, but on Tuesday morning, I woke up with all the excitement of little Kevin from Home Alone, because for the first morning in a long, long time, the home I woke to was blissfully quiet and blissfully empty, and for five joyous days, I've been able to live the bachelor life again. I haven't trodden on a single brick of Lego, I haven't chiseled a single dried up Weetabix off the wall. I haven't had to throw a single excessive cushion off the bed in disdain. The family is away, and so I can work as late as I need to and eat what I want to and have all the time to myself I could ever hope for. Except you very quickly discover, don't you, that some joys are best enjoyed together. That bottle of wine that sits in the kitchen might go down by one glass a night and taste very nice after a long day, but it doesn't taste rich when you're drinking it alone. I can cook an extravagant meal that the kids would never touch, but it turns out it's actually far more enjoyable to present that food to others, which is why I suppose in those bachelor days I made far more time for friends. Well, Psalm 133 is beautifully short and simple, and it's wonderfully fun, isn't it? What's not to love about a beardy priest with oil dripping all over the place from his chops? And the message is earthy and rich and full of life. It's a psalm lifting up a kind of wholesome togetherness which belongs right at the heart of God's blessing for us as Christian people. If you were to ask, what is the Bible's vision for the ideal church? Not what is our strategy or what do we do or how do we grow, but what should it feel like when it's working the way it should? Well, Psalm 133 was written to let us experience experience it in three short lines of poetry. Yes, the ideal church would have a lot more going on. We'd be bearing each other's burdens. We'd be weeping with those who weep. We'd be dying every day, 
burning ourselves out for the gospel, making food for evening church and prepping Bible studies and putting up with fellow sinners. Yes, all of that. But in and through all of that, there ought to be a deep, wholesome sense of merriness and togetherness. And that's what we taste here in this psalm. Notice there is no exhortation for us to follow, no command here to unity. This works the way all good poetry does work. It shows us something beautiful, something God wants for us, and it makes us long for it ourselves. We get the theme of the psalm in verse one, and then we get two wonderfully resonant illustrations which push it into richer territory. So two simple points this morning. First, verse one, God is a joy best shared. And then verses two and three, God's blessings pour down as we do. First then, from verse one, there are some joys which simply taste better when we enjoy them together. And the God of the gospel is one of those. God is a joy best shared. And I think the key to this psalm is the little Hebrew title above it in your Bibles, a song of ascents, literally a song of going up. This is a song for going up to Jerusalem with. In other words, this is part of a little collection of psalms that were used by Israel's pilgrims as they made their way up to Zion for one of the great feasts to worship and to celebrate around the tabernacle. Now, presumably when David wrote it before the temple had even been built, it hadn't quite taken on that place yet in Israel's liturgy. This little collection of psalms was assembled later on, and it became a kind of songbook for pilgrims. But Psalm 133 was a perfect fit in that songbook, because if you'll notice, David's focus is very, very tabernacle There's an illustration about the high priest, and then a second one about a blessing you can only ever enjoy when you gather in Zion. So what is all that telling us? Well, it's telling us that when we read these really familiar words in verse one, how good it is when brothers dwell in unity, we're meant to be thinking of something a little more specific than believers who don't argue too much. This isn't really a psalm praising that slightly vague idea of Christian unity. This is about togetherness in a much greater joy. There's something that has brought these brothers together, a joy they are sharing as they come from all walks of life and from all across Israel to sit down and feast for the Passover and worship in the temple and camp in their little booths together for the festival. Our translators have added that word unity in verse one to try and capture the sense of surprise in the Hebrew. Literally, it says something like, look how good, how pleasant a thing it is when brothers sit down, even together. And there's a few times in the Bible that 
that sitting down word gets used alongside this together word. In the simplest sense, it means something like sitting down for a meal together. These feasts were called feasts for a reason, weren't they? It would be a whole week of food and friendship and psalm singing. There's something incredibly uniting and joyful about sharing together over food. Often in the Bible, there's a spiritual significance to eating with someone. You can't share bread with another human being you despise. It's just not how we're wired. And so God eats with his people at Sinai. The covenants are always accompanied by feasting and togetherness. Jesus eats with us Sunday by Sunday around the Lord's Supper. It's a reconciling meal. But often that sitting down word can mean something like dwelling or living or settling, like here in our ESVs, living alongside one another. Jerusalem, during those festivals, must have been something like a massive camping trip with all your extended family and with strangers everywhere greeting each other warmly and sharing supplies. And you can imagine the party atmosphere, can't you? As people lived alongside one another in their little tents, it's very like Glastonbury, except they haven't come together to smoke weed and worship rock stars. They've come together to smell incense and worship the God they love. He's the one who has brought them all together, which makes it a very unique kind of thing, because if we're honest we don't see much of this togetherness in our world, do we? In fact, there are two significant times we get those dwelling and together words in the Bible, both in the book of Genesis, and both of them telling us that it wasn't possible. Abraham and Lot, his nephew, used to dwell together, tents side by side. Jacob and Esau, brothers, used to dwell together, But both times, we're told, the land just couldn't support them. They had to separate, go their own ways, because dwelling together in a cursed world isn't easy. Think of David, the king, and what it must have been like for him. What must have driven him to write this psalm? Who would long for this kind of togetherness, this kind of friendship, more than the king who spent half his life battling a broken kingdom and facing betrayal. Maybe those of us who long for this the most are the ones who feel like we've never been allowed to have it. And so when David finally saw this little taste of it in God's worshipping people, a little haven of togetherness in a fractured world, No wonder he wanted that for his people, wanted to celebrate it and encourage it. So look, he says, behold, look how deeply good and how pleasant this is. Sometimes I guess we think of church a little bit like broccoli. We know it's good for us, but not exactly pleasant. And so we grit our teeth and we drag ourselves along. David is saying no This is a miracle in a fallen world, intrinsically good in itself, 
but also subjectively beautiful, pleasant when you taste it. Because ultimately, it's about enjoying the one who is both of those things. Just let your eyes drift down the page in your Bibles to Psalm 135. And look what it says there about God. Look at verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Tov. Sing to his name, for his name is pleasant. How good and how pleasant is the God that we love. And so no wonder it is good and it's pleasant when we meet together around him. That's what this psalm is really about. What a blessing it would be if more often we gave time to self-consciously enjoying God together. Coming here eager to sing shoulder to shoulder and hear from him. Or opening up our homes on a Saturday night or a Sunday lunchtime, not just to feast, but to feast explicitly as merry Christians, enjoying God's goodness to us. I wonder if we realize what a rare and precious thing we have here to invite others into. We spend our weeks out in a fractured world where all of us are entirely absorbed with ourselves, with our own wants and needs and worries. And yet it turns out that five whole days to devote to yourself does not provide the joy you think it will. We're wired to want each other, even us introverts. And you can't dwell joyfully together if we're all just chasing our own comforts. And so Jesus is building something far, far better in his church. That's what we have here. Something nobody you know has ever seen anything like anywhere else. Because God is a joy best shared. And secondly, because God's blessings pour down when we do, when we share in him together. I wonder if you notice the little playful feature of the poetry in my slightly wooden reading. It's a song of going up, a song of ascent, and yet the repeated phrase that comes three times in the two little illustrations is coming down. As we go up to worship God together, what actually happens is that his blessings pour down for us to enjoy. Oil running down the beard, running down the collar, dew running down on the mountains of Zion. It's the same word each time. These are two pictures of abundant, flowing blessing coming down to us from above. So this togetherness that we enjoy when we meet in God's presence, it isn't something that comes from us. It isn't something we've achieved or worked hard at fostering or some sort of loving spirit we've just whipped up in ourselves. No, that sense of loving togetherness is a gift of God. It's his achievement. In fact, if you were here last Sunday evening, we saw that this is the single big thing God is doing in his world. He's gathering together one new people, one body, 
in the church of his son. Sin separates and divides human beings. It makes us lonely and broken. And it's why we long for community so much, isn't it? Because the real thing always eludes us. And only God can overcome that. Only in his son can he piece back together a true community, cover over the sin, and mend the breaks. And so these two pictures are helping us to delight in the goodness and the wholesomeness of that gift of God, that blessing. Now, admittedly, they are slightly kind of weird and wonderful pictures, aren't they? This gift of God that we enjoy together is like beard oil, and it's like Mountain Dew. But the stress in both pictures is the absolute uniqueness of the gift. It's not just any old beard oil. It's not even Marks and Spencer's beard oil. No, this is Aaron's beard oil. And it's not just any old Jew. It's a kind of Jew that is a physical and geographical impossibility. We enjoy each other together in God's presence. And when we do, it is like sacred oil that belongs in no one else's beard. And it's like life-giving dew that belongs nowhere else on earth. The beard oil gets all of us too to itself. And the thing about oil is that it was used in worship for a very specific task. Oil is used to anoint someone to a special position. So think of the Messiah, for example. It literally means the anointed one. Oil is poured out over him, and it's a picture of God's spirit being poured on him to mark him out as king. This time, though, it's not the king being anointed. It's Aaron, Israel's great high priest, the first priest, and he stands in the psalm for the entire priesthood. He is the one who gets to stand right in God's presence, right in the center of the tabernacle, and to be with him as a representative for all of the people. And to do that, you had to be set apart. And so God gives over several chapters in the book of Exodus on how to do that. How do you set apart the priest, Aaron, from everybody else to make him holy to the Lord. And it involved, among other things, training up a master perfumer and getting him to concoct this special sacred oil out of the most incredible blend of sweet spices and perfumes. Exodus 30 gives us the recipe, so it's not exactly top secret like the recipe for iron brew, but it tells us that it is so sacred You're not allowed to make it for anything else. And it's not to be poured out over anybody else, over any ordinary person. Only the priest and his robes and the tabernacle itself, because everything it touches is made holy. But think what a heady, intoxicating thing it would have been to gather to worship round this priest. I'd hate to be his mum on laundry day because this potent, sacred oil is literally poured all over him, isn't it? Soaking into his beard, dripping down his chest, through the mouth of his robes. There's no skimping here. It's lavish. And although 
you and I, the ordinary plebs, we don't get to touch it. There's this priest in our midst who literally becomes a kind of walking, talking oil diffuser. Everywhere he goes, that heady scent of cinnamon and frankincense, it wafts with him. And so all of us share in this blessing which belongs only to the priest. It's as if sacredness flows from him to us, from priest to people, as the oil wafts over the tabernacle. Everyone in the courts of the tabernacle breathing in this one sacred smell, united in this one priest. And then he would go and sacrifice to God, wearing an insanely blingy breastplate right over his heart with 12 precious jewels on it, inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes, our names as Israelites, presumably with oil dripping all over them. And so you see the priest gathers together all of God's people on his heart, literally, and he carries them into God's presence. So what's it like then when we worship together? Well, verse 2 It's like sharing in this heady, potent blessing that belongs only to our great high priest. There's something about our togetherness, our shared love for God and for each other that makes this time sacred. Christian fellowship is like that sacred oil. Everything it touches is set apart. It becomes holy. And I suspect the association here with Aaron is meant to be more than just a comparison. When we gather into God's presence to enjoy him, we can do it only through our great high priest, through the risen Lord Jesus who carries us on his heart right into the throne room of heaven. It's only in him that we get to enjoy all of this, all the wonderful relational stuff that comes with it. It's him who makes these relationships sacred and set apart and who mends all the brokenness of sin and pours this blessing of peace and wholeness everywhere he goes. Walk into a place where Christians are loving other Christians and delighting in God altogether And it's as if you're watching perfume being poured out on Jesus' head, our great high priest. It's as if you're sharing in Jesus' fragrance, Jesus' joy. And then the picture in verse 3 takes that blessing in a slightly different direction, still something that pours down on us from above. But this time, that brotherly love between God's people is like life-giving dew that belongs nowhere else on earth. Now, to put this in Scottish terms, Mount Hermon is a Munro three times over. It's a proper 9,000-foot mountain, the tallest in Israel, right up in the north. It's lush, and it's green all year round, and in the winter, it's capped with snow. Whereas, to be honest, little Mount Zion, down south in Jerusalem, isn't that much more impressive than Arthur's seat. It is dusty, and it's arid, and it's dry. And in the summer, it barely gets a drop of rain. 
So you can imagine, can't you, these hot, thirsty pilgrims trudging their way up to Zion, singing longingly about the dew of Mount Hermon, longing for that cool, refreshing, sweet water. If Aaron's oil made everything holy, then Hermon's dew makes everything green and full of life. There's only one problem. You see, Mount Hermon is literally nowhere near Jerusalem. It would be like us singing about the sunshine of Spain falling on Scotland. I mean, it's a lovely idea, a really lovely idea. It just doesn't ever happen, does it? And yet that's what it's like when brothers come together to share in the God they love. The first picture was about something sacred being poured from priest to people. This one is about life being poured from one into another. God is bringing his people together from Hermon to Zion, from north to south. And it's as if these hot, dusty northerners arrive in Jerusalem and they bring Hermon's dew with them. It is sometimes like that, isn't it? When old friends appear. Last week, a young pastor from Tennessee walked through that door with his wife completely out of the blue. I saw him last three years ago, sitting around the fire pit in Mississippi. I wasn't expecting him, but they're on holiday in Scotland. They knew that we were here. They wanted to worship on Sunday with the Lord's people. And it does put a smile on your face, doesn't it, when that happens? Herman's dew watering Zion is a physical impossibility. And yet it happens supernaturally wherever God's people meet. Because there, says the psalm, God commands his blessing. Now, where is the there in that last line? The most obvious place grammatically is Zion, the word right before it, Jerusalem. Because that was the place God met with his people in the temple to shower his grace on them. God blesses them as they worship in Zion's temple. Or it could be, as several scholars take it, that the there is meant to stretch all the way back to verse 1, before the two illustrations, so that there, the place God blesses us, is wherever brothers sit down together. I think if you think carefully about how the psalm works, though, actually, we don't have to choose between the two, do we? Because for David's readers, those places were one and the same. It's as God's people enjoy him together, gather around his temple in Zion, that God has promised to bless them. And the blessing they received there was life forevermore. As they worshiped together, God gave them a little taste of life in all its fullness. In fact, there was nowhere else on earth you could have that taste because the harmony they shared in God's presence was a supernatural reality, just like rain from the north falling on the south. And maybe that is the most thrilling thought in this psalm because it's telling us that something happens here when we gather together around God that is like nothing else on earth. 
it goes without saying that those old covenant Israelites didn't literally receive eternal life the moment they set foot in earthly Zion. Otherwise, there would be some remarkably old people hanging around Jerusalem today. But there was something in that rich, unique experience of brotherly love and shared joy in the God of grace that let them at least taste it, taste the life that was promised them as they worship in God's dwelling place, around God's priest in earthly Zion, they got to participate in the real thing, taste the joy and the love and the unity of heaven. The physical Jerusalem, Zion, was only ever the appetizer, the taster. But a faithful Israelite always understood that. And so they could sing these songs with one another and look forward through the earthly Zion to the heavenly city that it let them experience. And the Bible says just the same thing to us, doesn't it? As we gather together, Hebrews says we haven't come to a mountain that we can see and touch. We've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven. That's what we're participating in right now. And so we get to taste in a very little, imperfect, but very genuine way, the real thing, life forevermore, fullness of life with all its riches and joy and relational harmony. You might invite a friend to church one day who never does respond to the gospel in the end or make it to heaven. And perhaps that feels like a huge disappointment. But just think about what you gave them in that invitation. They got one hour, one Sunday morning, in an ordinary room like this, to gather around the great high priest whose name is love. They got to see the joy on his people's faces. They got to see ugly sinners with nothing in common, loving each other and singing together in a supernatural way. For one hour, they got the closest taste they'll ever have to a joy that belongs in heaven. And even if they miss out on that for the rest of eternity, surely it was worth it. And as we sit down together and experience it here week by week, God is teaching us to love it, isn't he? He's teaching us to long for it. Let me close with a very good question that Augustine, the church father, asked as he pondered this psalm. He asked this, how shall I, a man clothed in flesh, enslaved to the flesh, have my habitation in heaven? Well, that is all of us, isn't it? We belong to a self-absorbed, fractured, me-centered world. And so here's Augustine's answer. First, he said, go in heart where you would follow in the body. In other words, we have to train our hearts to delight in something better than this. 
And what better way to do that than by celebrating this little taste that God gives us now as we enjoy him together in Jesus. How deeply good and how precious it is. Well, let me pray and give thanks for it. Loving Lord God, we confess that by nature we are as self-absorbed and curved inwards as the fractured world we belong to is. And yet in your wondrous love, you've called us out of that brokenness and rebellion and united us in grace to the body of your son. And so we praise you for this goodness and joy, this true taste of eternal life that we can experience as we share together in our love and enjoyment of you. We praise you for our great high priest whose name is love, upon whose hands and heart our names are engraved and forever united. Help us, we pray, Father, to appreciate the full riches of your great gift to us in him and to never grow tired of thanking you for it together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.